But for air analysts following those companies, that was vital data. But this was all within the terminal. That's all in terminal. Do you remember the keystroke for that? No, I can't, unfortunately. (laughs) But if somebody writes fresh salmon, they can probably find it with a predictive text. And it shows Bloomberg's attitudes to data, that they want everything that is remotely useful. That's worth 2,000 bucks a month. It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. Today, a look at the Bloomberg Terminal. It's a device I feel like I always read about, how ubiquitous it is on Wall Street, how it's full of sophisticated financial data, how it costs $2,000 a month. And it's something I've always acted like I knew about. You know, I read about it and I say, oh yeah, the Bloomberg Terminal. But the last time I saw it mentioned, I realized I don't know anything. I don't even know what the thing looks like. I don't even know what you can do with it. I may be the only one with this question, but we'll get an answer to it today. What is the Bloomberg Terminal and just how much power does it have over our economy? But first, as always, a number that caught our eye this week. It's the significant digit. Um, So can I tell you a number? Yes. The number is 27.6%, which is the number of female representatives, governors, senators that Hawaii has elected over time. And that's the highest, 27.6%. That's the highest of any state. That's nice. (laughs) What am I supposed to say? It's too much. It's too little. It should be 50% in an ideal world. I can go on like this for a while. You don't want me to go. Want to take a guess what the lowest percentage is? There's one state that has elected zero women to governor, senator, or representative. Let's see. Well, it has to be a state that I don't follow, so I'll give you... No. It has to be somewhere... I don't know where it is. So let's pick up that guessing game and add a little more context to this with Simone Landon, senior editor at 538 and someone I've been trying to get on this podcast for a long time. But uh, Simone, that that woman, Vicki Rosen, was trying to guess the one state that has never elected female governor representative or, or senator. And what what is that one state? Tell Vicki and all of us. It's Mississippi, uh, which in its entire history as a state has never elected a woman to one of these higher offices. Uh, and that, that research comes from uh, Abby Abrams, who was one of our data reporter interns over the summer, and she put together this sort of awesome compendium of all of the women ever elected to these offices. So we have tons of data on who they are, uh, when they were elected. Um, a number of them she found were, elect- were appointed or elected to replace their husbands who died in office. Um, that was sort of in the early years of women getting elected. And going back to the other end of the spectrum, Hawaii, do we have any sense of why Hawaii is, is so special, special in this grading on a curve when it's only around 25 percent. So Hawaii didn't become a state until 1959. And so you could say you could look at its sort of opportunities to elect women have, first of all, been fewer overall. Um, And it's also had its elections in the modern era when states overall have been more likely to elect women. It's Um, funny that woman I spoke to on the street, Vicky, posited this as a theory. Vicky was right. I guess so. (laughs) But um, does that mean that like older states, you're your data set is bigger with them, and so obviously they're going to have a less percentage over time? Sure. So on the one hand, you could say they've had more chances. Um, they've been states longer, and they've had these offices open. But you know, because 
no woman was elected to one of these offices until 1917. Um, her name was Jeanette Rankin, and she was elected in Montana. Montana. Um, basically, we're looking from 1917 forward, and, and you have a different starting point for every state. If you do, say, look at the entire history of, of the country and you take the percentages sort of that way and look at the percentages are women, um, everyone looks pretty bad. <laughs> Hawaii, <laughs> Hawaii, again, is at uh, 28%. I guess you could look at the individual stats and get pretty depressed. But in terms of a trend line, at least, is there hope in that? Are we getting better at electing women to higher office? So I think it really depends. I mean, the, the more populous states tend to look a little bit better again, like I said, because they have sort of more chances in theory. Um, and most states are getting a little bit better over time. I actually think Arizona is sort of an interesting and surprising case and um, looks like his elected female governors pretty consistently um, since the 80s or 90s. Other states, it's just sort of a mixed bag of of senators and governors. Simone Landon, senior editor at 538. Thank you. And thank you, Abby Abrams, for doing that research. We miss you, Abby. Yeah, we miss you, Abby. Shout out to Abby. So here's what I know about the Bloomberg Terminal. It is available for an annual fee of about $20,000 to $25,000. It's 2000 bucks a month. There are about 325,000 subscribers worldwide. Most people who use it seem to have two to six screens laid out in front of them and one keyboard with all these different colors on it. And I imagine the people using it are yelling stuff over their shoulder about pork bellies or selling credit default swaps. But beyond that, I really don't know much. Um, other than it's full of powerful data, it is single-handedly propping up a huge media company. And there are tons of competitors trying to take it down. But luckily, here on What's the Point, we have two people who know a lot more about the Bloomberg Terminal than I do. Lynette Lopez from Business Insider and Robin Wigglesworth from the Financial Times. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to 538. Hi. Thanks for having us. So both of you have seen this thing in action. Your fingers have stroked the keys of a Bloomberg Terminal? I have definitely stroked the terminal. Um, <laughs> and so you use it as a, as a journalist. Robin, have you, you used it as a journalist as well? Have you ever yeah, used I've it? used it as a journalist both at Bloomberg and outside. I'm a full disclosure. I worked there for a couple of years. And the saddest thing about leaving Bloomberg, apart from some wonderful colleagues, was actually not having my own terminal. It felt like cutting off an arm. And you get really addicted to being able to use all this data, all this stuff. And I have to admit, when I came over to New York, I actually moved my desk over to where the intern usually sits because it's the closest to the terminal. And so be close to one again. And so we could talk a a little bit about how, as journalists, you kind of jump on it and and use it to do your reporting. But let's just imagine you're, you know, a regular quote unquote terminal user. So that means you are what? You're a trader at a bank. Who who are you? Who should who should our test case be? Sure, you work in financial services. You're probably in the front office. you are a trader, you're an, well, maybe not so much an investment banker if you're working on deals. Um, you're an analyst, you have to pull up stuff to do your research. Um, definitely if you're at a hedge fund, you're checking this out. You're not a peon. Okay, so let's say you are a non-peon at Goldman Sachs, Robin, and you come in in the morning, you sit here, you've actually probably slept under your desk, I would imagine. Quite and okay, yeah. you get up and you turn on your Bloomberg terminal and like, what's the what do you see? Well, the first thing you see is some really silly quote from somebody 
Uh, that's really? supposed to inspire you to start the day. Quack, quack. I was, yeah, I know. It's just, so lame. Yeah, I, it, you know, probably worked at the start. But then you then you get into the action. And typically, you know, people check all the news function. You know, that's what most people outside the industry knows. We know of it as a big news organization. But people at Bloomberg, at least the salespeople, used to joke that, you know, if they shut down the newswire tomorrow, nobody really would notice anything. Because the big industry is a terminal. You can crunch the numbers. You can check out what bond markets are doing, currencies, stock markets, pretty much everything on the planet. All right, so we have a picture of one of these that we're going to put up here, and uh, this is it. This is a Bloomberg terminal, two screens, uh, lots of data and information right in front of you. To my very untrained eye, I can see what looks like stock quotes, right? So obviously that's no surprise to me. There's financial information. You can check on how the market's doing. But what other kind of information is coming through this? Well, you can book a restaurant reservation. You can book a flight. You can <laughs> First, let's stick to the stuff that's related the to job the job. of being a banker is also living like a banker. It's so true. you've got to hit the, all the hot restaurants. And you've got to take your clients out. So that's what that function is for. Okay. And I think Bloomberg really tries to cater to every aspect of the business. Not just the number crunching part, which which is why you have the chat feature, which is the most important feature, why you have your own kind of built-in LinkedIn system where everyone has a profile. And yeah. one of the things that we were talking about earlier is this would give Steve Jobs a heart attack. Right. Like the everything takes more than three steps. There's no unless you're just going to the news structure, you know, news function and going to scroll and it looks hideous. It's like black background, white writing, it just it's it's a slaughter on the eyes. So why is that? I mean, this is an industry that has all the money in the world. World, an industry that thinks of itself as cutting edge. Why in the world is their main tool this like thing that looks like it hasn't changed have since you, the eighties? Have you ever met Michael Bloomberg? <laughs> You know. Well, I think it's also the industry. Like, these finance people, I mean, they're very conservative. And, you know, when you learn to use something, it's the reason why people stuck to Nokia phones, even long after Nokia phones were a pain to deal with, because they're used to it. Your point is a good one, which we will get more into, which is that they very clearly want to just keep you in that thing. And they want to take over your entire world and just have everything come through the terminal. But in terms of the different commands that you can call up regarding the, the sort of financial information and the fi- and the work of finance that happens in it. What, I mean, you've you've written an article where you describe some kind of the, the yeah. Things I mean, you if can we just take bring this, up on this command. shot here, for example, this looks like a this classic one. It's, it looks like a Japanese company where they've used a candle bar, which just means you can see the intraday moves in that stock price and some moving averages. And that you can do with a few keystrokes. You can see all these fancy, fancy technical things, and it's just incredibly powerful. So you can use that. You can see well if I buy, let's say, this IBM bond versus this Apple bond, what will I make most money? How sensitive is it? If, let's say, the Fed raises interest rates tomorrow, how will that be affected by that? What should I be buying? And then you can use it for everything from chatting to other people if you want to do a trade or really just exchange the latest of Wall Street joke, really. And you mentioned, you said keystrokes, and it's true, right? This happens not in terms of interface, it's not like you're mousing around. You're actually hitting keystrokes. Yeah. So you pointed out that if you type BMAP, BMAP, that calls up a map of gold mines uh, yeah. around the world. Or if you type ECTR, you can get information about... If, if you're ever bored, you can just randomly write in something, and the predictive text will try and guess what you're trying to get at, and you can discover these incredibly weird niche functions that you just didn't think it's existed. It's so strange. But they clearly want to make it a world that where bankers feel uh, protected, and feel as if, and I guess it's probably sort of related to why it's remained sort of 
clunky and has its own lingo is to some extent it's like Keeping we don't we don't want yeah. it to be democratic we don't want it to be intuitive we mm. want to to work to have to have this secret knowledge well i have to admit so once you learn the terminal a little bit i mean obviously the coloring looks terrible the emailing system is awful but once you learn to use it you realize it's weird intuitive in a kind of ugly right. non-intuitive way and it has but to that's be finance in general yeah, yeah exactly weird yeah. because exactly. there are all these obstacles i always tell my junior reporters just read a few books like start reading a lot and you will start to realize that all of this is just a bunch of vocabulary words that are mm. used to keep people out and you know i mean i can understand why bankers need a safe place because the world is so harsh to them <laughs> and so you know i guess i get it i get it bloomberg <laughs> Let's talk a little bit more about the kind of suite of information that you can access inside this terminal. I mean, how broad of a range of data are we are we talking about? I have t- my two favorite things about the Bloomberg terminal. One is that Bloomberg has an entire research arm dedicated to putting research about everything that's on the terminal on the terminal. So if you're looking at Chinese equities, they have a Chinese equities research person. So they're generating, they're not just aggregating, they're right. kind of generating their own They have their own analysis and data. Yeah. Everything's great, you know. Um, I, they're, they're gaming analysts I find really useful. Um, <laughs> my other favorite, uh, my other favorite component there is the most valuable person Essentially, the person whose profile is being viewed the most that day. So you can log in and see whose profile inside that ecosystem is being viewed the most. What does that tell you? Right. It's the most popular person on Wall Street that day. Um, once it was a girl named Zinya Chimacheva, who was a model who was working for JP Morgan, and all the guys found out, so they all started creeping her profile. Um, <laughs> Wonderful. One day it was a guy named Amal Shithole. I'm just going to leave it at that. That was his last that name. That was his and last name. Just, like, and was everyone, and it, was- it was summer. It was sad. This um, is a nice reminder that, yes, th- these, these guys, are yeah. ex-frat guys. <laughs> these are all, you know, they're all chilling on the Bloomberg Terminal all day looking for something to do. I mean, the, a lot of banking is a lot of hurry up and wait kind of work. You know, you're crushed because you're in a deal and then you have like a breathing period or you're a younger person and you're waiting for somebody to get out of a meeting to put a pile of work on your desk. Um, So, you know, you spend your free time looking at restaurant reviews and potentially booking flights and staring at Well, and probably because – and you're doing it on the terminal because probably every other website is blocked, right? Right. Right. Uh, but but Robin, what else can you can you access in here? Well, my personal favorite is actually a personal example. When I worked at Bloomberg uh, for almost a year, I had to actually write about frozen and fresh salmon prices in Norway on a monthly wow. basis. Jeez, because Norway was one of the beat. biggest. That, well, I mean, my beat was actually Nordic economics and politics, and oh. this was sort of shoved onto me. Interesting. And I was very frustrated. I kept asking, "Why do I have to do this?" And I talked to my boss, and he said, "Well, because Norway is the biggest salmon producer in the world." World and generally sets the price for salmon around the world. There are only maybe like half a dozen listed salmon companies. My but God. for yeah, analysts following those companies, that was vital data. Right. That was information that could only be accessed in a weird little area on the Norwegian Statistics website. So I had to go on there on a monthly basis and write oh that gosh. up the second it hit. But this and was all within the, the terminal. That's all in terms. Do you so remember they, the keystroke for that? No, I can't, unfortunately. <laughs> but if somebody writes fresh salmon... 
they can probably find it with a predictive text. And this shows Bloomberg's attitudes to data, that they want everything that is remotely Truly useful, exhaustive. even if it's only useful for, let's say, six analysts and mm-hmm. fund managers. If you're one of those six people, that's worth 2000 bucks a month. Totally. That's how they do it. So they get every conceivable piece, or whether it's a stock or a bond or a commodity or pork bellies or whatever, put on the terminal, and then try and monetize it. But when you say all that data comes in, I mean, are Smines. they really good at scraping that from the the world, or are they actually generating every single one of these, like you said? I don't well, think it's every single one. Th- there's a mix. They have a data scraping team, so everything from scrapes official statistics bodies or the EPA or, for example, Statistics Norway. A lot of what I used to do is now thankfully automated uh, whoever <laughs> does that job now and uh, there's a salmon bot out there somewhere yeah just probably doing actually somebody's sitting that salmon algo great. scraping the statistics norway website oh and translating it as well you know yeah it's come we've come a long way since then uh, and then putting <laughs> on the terminal and then some of these journalists that do it you know put in something manually sometimes like dedicated researchers that put stuff up there but the idea is they want everything that can and possibly affect financial markets to be on there is it like crowdsourced in any way? I mean, can people add their own data to it or is it all coming from Bloomberg to you? I don't think people can crowdsource on Bloomberg. They can ask, for example, their company ticker or their debt. So a lot of it is automated. A lot of it is, you know, goes to a, a data crunching arms and they sit various places. I think you can send in information to them. I am learning this is today. Fa- um, 5.38. Me too. Wow. Yeah. That's what we're here for. Um <laughs> And let's talk a little bit uh, specifically about how you actually call this stuff up and some of the functions. So there's a keyboard that is unique to the uh, terminal, and we're, we're looking at it now. And it looks like a regular keyboard except for some of the uh, – this is worth $2,000 alone. They've put green stickers on some of the buttons, and they've put yellow, blue, and red stickers on some of the other buttons. But I guess these are shortcuts right. and bring up particular functions. Do you want to mention uh, any of these particular functions that, that you think are, are – of interest? Well, the yellow ones are the ones I use the most because let's say if you write up Apple and you don't want the Apple stock, you want the Apple bonds, you hit the corp button so you get the corporate bond. Mm-hmm. So it's some shortcut keys. But I have to admit, like most of those buttons are sort of archaic, they're remnants of old incarnations of the terminal. I don't know how much people actually use yeah, them. I Some f- people do, so they don't get rid of them. But I feel like the search function is more useful yeah. because then you can put in a more general term and then it calls up all the options and you scroll through and pick one. So that to me is like a little bit more useful. I We have a list of, you know, commands sitting next to our terminal that are the most used commands i look at those i don't remember it's like in one ear and out the other right Uh, but in there either through keystrokes or maybe there's a shortcut um let's talk a little bit about the range of weirder spots within the terminal so you mentioned that there's the mvp where you can see who's the most visited but there's also what restaurant reviews right uh there's like a Craigslist for super rich people. Yeah, that's fascinating. I uh, think that's yeah. a real well, like they should give some social social anthropologists access to that. So oh, I'm sure Bloomberg would be yeah. fine with that. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it's really the only place you can go where people regularly talk about seaplanes. Yeah, you know. Fine. If you ever fancy <laughs> but, but, like borrowing a three-bedroom place in Tuscany, then the right. Bloomberg Craigslist. This is not a euphemism. Go. This is actually a marketplace where Bloomberg users sell the stuff that they don't want anymore and it really does go up to that level like housing they're listing houses and they're listing 
fancy cars? I think it's more like rental, like... I have this thing, not going to be using it. Who wants it? Kind of thing. This is, which is what I see with like a lot of like transportation and vacation stuff. Yeah, and I believe lots the key- of holiday homes, lots of fancy cars. And right. I believe the keystroke for that is posh. Posh. P O S H. I imagine the Englishman invented that one. Oh yeah. god! Uh, but there's a keystroke dine, which brings a restaurant. There's a keystroke fly, which presumably yeah. you can make airline reservations yeah. in your Bloomberg terminal. So fundamentally, Bloomberg just wants basically you to be locked into the ecosystem and never, ever have to leave. It's like a Hotel California of financial data that once you're on it, you never can leave. Yeah, on Facebook. Yeah, exactly. Right. I wonder if Facebook worries. Right? Or if it's just such a small world that they're like, okay, we'll sacrifice these 300,000 people. Facebook is free. And, you know, Bloomberg costs $2,000 a month and Wall Streeters like it. Okay, so you've mentioned it a few times. I think it's time we talk about the chat function. Yes! Which every, I mean, this is amazing to me that we talk about this incredibly powerful uh, tool that, again, let me remind people, costs $2,000 a month. And over and over, it's people... It's just a purse. It's fine. And over and over, people say the thing that really makes a difference is the chat function. It's How can that be? Being able to get in touch with anyone, you know, right away being able to like pop up on their screen talk to exactly the person on the other side of the planet that you need to be talking to you know the let me call you in five minute message that you get when traders need to talk to each other on the phone to avoid like let me call you on your cell you know to avoid compliance issues if they have to talk about something that's a little you know below the belt um all of that is is just about direct individual contact and you need that to trade. Yeah, it's like the world's most expensive and exclusive social network. I mean, you can imagine, so I get inundated by random people who want to be quoted in the FT all the time. Ugh, random yahoos problem. sitting somewhere with like a stock portfolio of like 200 bucks or something wants to be quoted some expert. <laughs> but if you're on the Bloomberg, you know he's kind of, I mean, it might not be a big play. It might not be David Tepper or Paulson or Ray Dalio, but you know he's in the industry. He's a serious guy because people don't spend 2,000 plus bucks a month on a terminal just for the fun of it. Right. As so somebody's trading with this guy. Effects. Yeah. Everybody knows if you're on the Bloomberg terminal, you're a sort of a semi-legitimate person in that industry. Right. And you've quoted people in, in some of the pieces you've written about the Bloomberg terminal who said that that's the reason, you know, someone, uh, you quoted someone who was looking at the Reuters product, Reuters mm-hmm. is one of the competitors, and said, we're going to choose Bloomberg, even though it's like way more expensive because of the chat function. Yeah, well, all the chatting happens electronically. So, yeah, I mean, if you're an economist, you don't really need the Bloomberg data function. You can get it far more cheaply through a Thomson Reuters, for example. But you want to talk to bond market participants, and right. you know, they all chat all day long on the Bloomberg terminal. So it has these barriers, these economic moats, as Buffett calls them, that, you know, you can call them up, but these bond traders are busy. They don't want to deal with 50 economists Definitely on the don't. phone. So it's a... I'm, Chat me, IB me. That's what they say. And that's, we have to IB instant Bloomberg. Instant Bloomberg. Yeah. Right. And I, I'm being a little disdainful, but of course we're all in an industry that is like obsessed with <laughs> Slack, right? Which is basically right. a glorified chat system. Yeah. So I understand, but it doesn't cost two thousand. But I don't a think month. you can Giphy on Bloomberg, so right. it's not as good as Slack. I'm going on the record without gifts. 
Bloomberg, you need to step What's your game up. That is true. Look, we've been we've been having a little bit of fun with the different features and the way that people use it, but I mean, clearly, it has to be powerful in some way, right? If it's had this much market dominance, it is. I mean, it's huge. I mean, I, I, Bloomberg you first started this. I mean, a few years, decades ago. But then you know, the, the big domination was from Dow Jones or Tellerate. Dow Jones bought Tellerate mm-hmm. and and Thomson Reuters, and then they just kind of basically just kicked everybody's ass. I mean, they still act like they're a chippy outsider. And the thing I find fascinating with Bloomberg is it's a behemoth, but they still act like they're like a scrappy entrepreneurial startup. Right, where there's nobody... to eat them, eat their lunch, and... uh, Yeah, and there are no, you know, nobody has a formal title, really. Put their market dominance in context. Are they really the only game in town? For a lot of things. I think when you look at sort of splits of revenue across data provision to the financial industry, they're around half of that. So that doesn't look... It's not like sort of... It isn't like, um, you know, PCs back in the day or anything like that, but it's, it's pretty big. But in the core stuff, the stuff that you have to have, you know, for a lot of people in finance, you have to have a Bloomberg terminal. You just can't, especially if you work in bond markets. I mean, if you work in equities, you can probably get away with some other things. If you're an economist sitting there crunching numbers, you probably don't need one at all. Right. But if you're in bond markets, especially... And if you want to deal with people who work in bond markets, you have to be on the terminal. But but other than the dealing with the the, the fact that everyone's on it, so you have to be on yeah. it. What actual data do you get access to that you wouldn't otherwise? Well, the news is fast. It's really really fast. There is just no doubt about that. If we can, if we can get something off the terminal faster than Bloomberg News, we've beaten Bloomberg News and basically everyone else. And a trader feels the same way. If I get a piece of information ahead of someone who doesn't have a terminal, then I have an edge. Right, that's edge, you know. And um, the the vast resources are one thing, but again, you can't discount that I have to be on it because everyone else is on it. Because if somebody, there's there needs to be something somebody on the other side of every trade, you know. Mm-hmm. So this is the way of doing business. And I remember when all those stories came out about Bloomberg journalists. You being in chats and watching chats and, you know, that was really what was worrying the Wall Streeters. The fact that, like, there were journalists here listening in on right, our So just to contextualize this, a few years ago, it was discovered that all the reporters at Bloomberg had access that a lot of other reporters didn't because they worked at Bloomberg to kind of activity that was taking place inside the terminals. And they were then able to kind of report on moves um ahead of everyone else right. and i think you may know this better than i do but i think bloomberg basically said like this was just a something that hadn't occurred to us that they would have this access we didn't actively Whoopsie. give them this access yeah. whoops but and and you know our our clever journalists had figured out that we can use all this information to sort of gain an edge right and this uh, was all part of a big report about bloomberg transparency and how it works and this this issue the Journalists and chat issue was what really enraged Wall Street. Right. And Bloomberg, just to do my due diligence, has now appointed a client data compliance officer and it says it has closed all those loopholes, yada, yada, yada. Well, they didn't have access to, just to stress, they didn't have access to the chat room, or if, unless they were invited into the chat room, right. you can go onto them. But because the, the, 
basically the links between the commercial and editorial side of Bloomberg have always been very close. So what the commercial people used to do is look at big clients, see what keystrokes, what function do you use, and then maybe sell the salesperson in and say, look, you're using this function. How can we do that better? So they had lots of information. The thing is, the journalists started using that to see, at least in broad strokes, what clients were doing. And then there's things like you can see when people have logged on and off from Bloomberg. And that, you know, you can deactivate or activate. But I think this kind of crystallized this for iBanks and hedge funds. They suddenly realized, holy cow, there is so much that goes through the terminal. We are utterly dependent on that. I mean, if the Bloomberg terminal ever crapped out, you know, I mean, there would be a collective heart attack in the financial industry. Yeah, so it'd I think- be like that wonderful, magical <laughs> afternoon when Gmail crashed <laughs> and all of New York went to the bar. That's what it would be And check like. their Facebook from it the bar. to it was the best day. Um, but yeah. but one more round on the journalists. So one of the ways that they would use that I read that Bloomberg uh, journalists would, would kind of use the chat or the, the features inside mm-hmm. the terminal is they would notice, for instance, oh, so-and-so hasn't logged on yeah. in several weeks. Maybe they've been fired or, you know, so and, and, and can just sort of intuit information. But you said that there was keystroke, that there's also keystroke data that's coming. I and mean, this has to be a they huge data functions. set. For Bloomberg, right? If they can, if if they own all these terminals and all this powerful yeah. stuff is happening on it, I mean, what are they? Where is that data sitting, and who's who's looking at it? Uh, and it's definitely something they're worried about. I mean, Bloomberg is paranoid about cybersecurity, as as are all the banks. And I think the the realization was that they were very dependent on Bloomberg. Uh, how much information you can actually get, I don't know. Actually, I, it was fairly broad. You couldn't find out like David Tepper's like personal portfolio. That'd be hilarious. And but on the keystroke uh, front, you said we, they could notice that some someone was checking out a particular company yeah. repeatedly, and then that's a pretty clear I, indicator. I that- don't know if they could check out companies or if they could check out, let's say, the desk page or certain the functions, not per se individual securities or right. tickets as they're called like let's say one specific bond or one stock because that would be you know dodgy right but the thing is even if journalists couldn't access it all that information is in the bloomberg terminal and understandably if i was a guy sitting there you know managing right. billions of dollars i'd be worried about basically this one organization somehow like you say has a database somewhere of everything that happens on Chinese the Chinese hackers, is, yeah, Russian hackers. Completely. If they you know, hacked into the Bloomberg terminal, that high school kid from hackers. that 80s movie, anybody <laughs> could destroy Wall Street if they hack into a yeah. Bloomberg. Support for What's the Point comes from Dropbox for Business. And here's what we're going to do. Right now, I'm uploading a bit of extra audio from this week's show to Dropbox. It's a story that Lynette told about how traders decided to gang up on the chef Mario Batali from inside the Bloomberg terminal. So here we go. I'm putting it on Dropbox for everyone to listen to. And while that's uploading, let me tell you about Dropbox for Business, which helps you work the way you want. It's got all the things you love about Dropbox, as well as enterprise-grade security and administrative controls. You and your team can work together on any file type, on any device, simply and securely. There are sharing controls like expiration dates and passwords for shared links. Basically, they figured out the cloud. Over 100,000 businesses already use Dropbox for Business. Yours should, too. All right, and that audio is already uploaded. I'm sharing it now, simple enough. You can find a link to it on our website and take a listen, 538.com slash podcasts. And thanks again to Dropbox for Business. Okay, back to the show. 
you, you mentioned some people who might be worried. Count me among them, right? Because this is a naive question, I know, but where's the line between a company having huge market share and much of our economy running through one proprietary piece of hardware and insider information and insider trade? I mean, wh- why shouldn't I think of this as collusion? Aside from the fact that life is entirely too short, um, I think you know Bloomberg is incredibly sensitive to that, too, because their, their ass is on the line if they get hacked. But again, you know. But I'm not even talking about a hack. I'm talking about the normal day-to-day function of this terminal and this world and all the powerful stuff that happens within that world. Why should that be allowed? But what, for example, Facebook is for the private sphere, that they control immense amount of data about ordinary people around the planet, or Google has information about all of us. Bloomberg, the Bloomberg empire, has a lot of information about finance and business. Uh, and that is, you know, um, they, like you like Lynette said, they, they have every incentive to handle it well, but there's a reason why there's such a scurry to try and topple mm-hmm. them off their throne. I mean, nobody feels 100% comfortable with this. I mean, Bloomberg went down for one afternoon and Wall Street crapped out. I mean, people so, really, so like nice. the UK government had to stop issuing debt. It was so it really was that bad. That day. It was, I mean, people joked about it. But if it had gone on for a few days, you, you'd see some it issues. It would have been bad. Yeah. If, yeah, I mean, it was in London, yeah. And yeah. then all the traders were at the bar enjoying themselves for like. But, but, you know. you, but you're saying that a significant portion of our kind of economic activity runs through this thing. Well, the, the, this finance is not really the economy. Obviously, right. there's huge feedback links. I, Do you I just think say that Bloomberg to yourself listen- every morning when you wake up? Finance <laughs> is not really the economy. Well, finance especially is when it really looks like we're kind of heading over the edge and you leave work and see normal people out drinking. You realize, oh, God, the world isn't ending. It's just exactly. that way. Well, all journalists yeah. have a sense about that when yeah. it comes to their beats. But um, I, I think that... Um, you have to look at who's investing in these companies that are trying to destroy Bloomberg, and it's Goldman Sachs. It's like all the banks that are too dependent on Bloomberg. They want competition. They want another place to turn. And what they're trying to create mostly is something with a chat feature, which is why Goldman <laughs> just backed Symphony, which is this new startup that's supposed to be a Bloomberg killer. It's a lot nicer looking than Bloomberg. I've played with it. I just don't think it doesn't have all the information that Bloomberg has, and I think at the end of the day, you have to remember that these guys don't have time to be fiddling around on like seven different programs, and that's the power of Bloomberg. Like, it's all right there. Yeah, it's I think you all know, but, right yeah. there because you, you can try to separate it if you want to, but what like sixty-three-year-old bond trader wants to learn Symphony? Are you freaking kidding? Right, you don't want to deal with five different functions. Everything you can do on a Bloomberg terminal, you can do somewhere else, but having it on one one terminal. Having it all integrated, all put together, that's the magic. The newswire, the data, the charts, the chat, everything put that together, and together it kind of becomes magic. And who is trying to unseat them? Who do you think could potentially build that same suite of functions? Well, Symphony is trying. So they're trying to go after. Most people have given up kind of a full frontal assault on Castle Bloomberg. They all want to, but they haven't really managed to. So most people are trying to attack certain areas. So you have everything from market that does CDS or specific niches of the market. Symphony is going for the the chatting function. There's like Thomson Reuters doing lots of the charting things. You can do yeah. everything else. but And there are some, you know, fintech startups that do charts and like all the fintech, financial, financial technology. technology. It's like Wall Street in the startup world. Gotcha. Um, it's 
it's the dorkiest. It's really cute. It's fantastic. Um, so, you know, they, people are trying to take a bit of share. Sometimes people gear their startups towards, okay, this is for small hedge funds. This is for people who trade commodities, you know, whatever. But for the most part, if you want to reach the big dogs, they mm. all have a Bloomberg terminal. And one thing that you're talking about is, like, big Wall Street banks just have these armies of number crunchers. Yeah. And all those armies are connected through their terminals. So in both of your answers, which were very detailed, n- neither of you mentioned price, which would have been the place where I would have started Money and said... is no well, object. I, well, this even $2,000 yeah. a month well, is yeah, no these object? These guys complain about it, and you know, I'd complain about it if I had to pay out for 1,000 terminals a year if I was a big iBank. Really? I mean, they're moaning about that. Even the FT can afford a few terminals. I so don't... I, I never, ever worry about the cost of something on yeah. Wall Street. The downside is always the time it takes because these guys have tons of money. They just don't have time. So, so what Robin was saying about everything being right there is really the That's adv- what the matters. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can try and compete on money, but you reach into those network effects. Let's say there's a guy who's an ex-Bloomberg executive who set up a rival desktop-based Bloomberg system, which kind of even looks a little bit similar. But kind of because it's cheap. It's like the, and without being too mean, it's like the Chinese ripoff of an Apple product. It oh. looks like Apple, but it's not quite the same. And everybody else knows it. It's like turning up for a fashion show with a fake knockoff Ferdy bag or something like that. I don't know. A, a, a what What bag? kind of bag? I don't know. A Birkin bag? A Birkin bag. bag is that better? A Birkin is that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have yeah. To, I'm, I'm not in a position bag. to <laughs> fact check that statement. I, yeah, I've, yeah, I've never understood spending that much money on something that you just put other things inside. But, mm. um,. I think that, again, time is everything. That is why these guys know never do their own laundry, never cook their own meals, especially we are always examining like the health, mental health ex- effects mm-hmm. of work on young Wall Streeters, middle-aged Wall Streeters. And if you have something that's a time saver, the more you can roll into a Bloomberg, the better. The, this is why, you know, like Goldman Sachs has like a concierge for all of its partners, right? You call one number, you have somebody who can like babysit your kids, somebody who will take care of like sending flowers to, you know, a couple of your friends that just got married or whatever. I don't know. Somebody who can take care of all your needs because all of your free time should be spent doing your work. So two thousand bucks sounds like a lot to us, or two thousand plus bucks. It, but really, it's a lot. Bit, yeah, yes. I mean, it, oh, it is. It's, you know, I'm not going to buy one to have at home. But you know, if you're a guy in the financial industry, and you kind of have, you kind of the, the the feeling is that you have to have one. It's not one of the areas you you, you cheap out on, really. And I presume Bloomberg's not going to budge on that price because of all the things you just mentioned. Well, they are worried about some of the competition. So they've always adjusted the price up by inflation every other two years, essentially. And they, they've always argued, and you know, it worked well for them for a long time. Thomson Reuters, Dow Jones had sort of 10, 15 different products. Bloomberg had one product, the terminal. The price is the price. We will negotiate about everything else. We will bend over backwards. If you think this isn't worth 1000 2000 3000 bucks eventually tell us what we can do to make it worthwhile that has always been there meaning adding more features Any, which you of tell course us brings what you makes want. you more dependent on the exactly. thing exactly it's, right. adi- it's an addiction you know right. when people lose their jobs or leave for another job on you know, gardening leave bloomberg offers them a bloomberg at home for free 
just to, wow. keep, just to keep wow. them hooked. It's like a it's D like they're giving away freebies. It's so yeah. crazy. Yeah. I didn't even know that. No, 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 they do. I know uh, lots of people, they have these little biometric thing? things. They check it at home. Then eventually they cut them off. But the whole point is to keep them on the Bloomberg for as long as possible, for as much as possible. So the idea of living without one feels... Empty. Yeah. Empty inside. I want to talk about one thing, which is a place where I worry, and I suspect as journalists, you guys also think about this as well. And one of the reasons I keep hearing about the terminal and the terminal's power, which is this balance as of Bloomberg, the company as a media company, and Bloomberg, the company as a terminal manufacturer, provider. And it's probably, well, I don't know. Is it worth even thinking about Bloomberg as a media company when over and over I just get the sense that the only thing they actually care about is providing data and that if Mike Bloomberg had to choose, he would choose the data services over the journalism in a heartbeat? Well, the data services is 80%, at least 80% of the revenue. So if you were a businessman, what would you choose, the 20% or the 80% of revenue? I mean, right. everything, the news wire was set up specifically to avoid, because in the beginning, they were dependent on news from Dow Jones and Reuters, and they didn't want to be dependent on what they thought was the competition. At some point, there were that Thomson Reuters or... Thompson and Reuters at that time and Dow Jones would just yank the chair and pull the plug on all the news so they set up their own newswire to do this and do it better in a more sort of tradey financially way and it worked really well but I mean if, if, you, if they ever had to choose between the two businesses then you know the data provision just wins all day long every day personally i hope they never get that act together because that is where the rest of media has an edge if they Mm. can ever figure out how to consolidate those two kind of sometimes opposing ideas you know because if they break news they they might break it on the terminal first and that gives business insider the opportunity so they'll choose to break it on the terminal first right because that's what you're paying two thousand dollars a month for so Mm. that gives me a business insider the opportunity to have my you know quick lightning reporters get it on the internet before Bloomberg can. Okay, but look, we all have our masters. I mean, we're sitting here at ESPN, so I understand what what it what it means to work for a large organization that has you know other priorities and sustains different parts of itself. But does this worry you at all, just in terms of thinking about the state of media? Well, ninety nine percent of the time, there is no problem with Bloomberg, a massive data organization, controlling a fairly sizable media organization. I mean, I wish it was smaller and less hefty, but you know they've got a phenomenal amount of phenomenally good journalists, unfortunately. But <laughs> there are issues, I mean, most famously the China case, when, you know, at some point, you know, maybe some big clients on the terminal side say, hey, don't run that story. So far, there's only been a few examples of that causing eruption. Most high profile in China where the Chinese let it be known they were unhappy about some articles that Bloomberg had done. So they blocked the website and Bloomberg eventually, you know, acquiesced quietly. And that is the worry. How pissed would Bloomberg be if all of a sudden there were, everybody in Washington was like, why don't we make this a systemically important financial institution? Like, yeah. why don't we make this so important that we're constantly up in there, checking their compliance, figuring out what's going on? I mean, that would be a dis- <laughs> Wait, Cut this part out. This is, this is boring. This is, this is a web extra right this here. This is yeah. boring. Yeah. 
Okay, Lynette Lopez from Business Insider and Robin Wigglesworth from, do you say FT or the Financial Times? Uh, I mix it up sometimes. Well, from FT, the Financial Times. Thank you both for coming and uh, explaining. Now I know what the hell this thing is. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks. And you're welcome to come over and play with it. Yes. I'm going to take you up on that. Yeah. yeah, come over, drink some beers, play some ping pong, check out God, the Bloomberg. It sounds a lot more Trade. fun at business side than at the FT. Make some dinner reservations, <laughs> buy, a, <laughs> buy a yacht. Yeah, you know, rent some property in uh, Lake Tahoe. Why not? I'm on it. All right, thanks a lot. Find video of my conversation with Lynette Lopez and Robin Wigglesworth and that picture of the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg Terminal keyboard on our website, 538.com slash podcasts. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel with help from Jordan Shulkin and Lois St. Jacques. Sarah Patterson is our intern. Joel Werner helped mix and produce this episode. My name is Jody Avergan. You can email me at podcasts at 538.com. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, who also hosts the Song Exploder podcast. A number of people have asked where they can get a copy of the theme music, and Rishi just made it available for download. So find a link on our website, 538.com slash podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes or your favorite podcast client and give us a rating and a review. It really does help others discover the show. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Hello, What's the Point listeners? I'm Chadwick Matlin. I'm Kate Fagan. I'm Neil Payne. And together we make up the crew of Hot Takedown, 538 Sports Podcast. Kate, how would you describe the show if you had to do it in like five seconds? It's freaking awesome. Okay, Neil? We take down hot takes. Look at that. That's sort of the title. Good point. (laughs) So if you want to hear us talk about the week in sports news and what people are talking about in an uninformed way and hear about the data and the stats and the analytics that take them down... Subscribe in the iTunes store, search for Hot Takedown to find us. We'll talk to you then. Do it.